Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 20th, 2022. I'm talking to you from a rather chilly New York City. Um, the world is cold at the moment. Uh, it's chilly, certainly on the uh, Russian-Ukrainian-Belarus border. Um, all the headlines this morning about Russian troops on the Ukrainian border, um, extending drills in Belarus, which is a friendly state. Uh, another headline in the journal this morning, Russian proxies in eastern Ukraine have uh, mobilized troops killing two Ukrainian soldiers. This is just the beginning of things many of us fear. And uh, if there is indeed a war, which seems increasingly likely, it will inevitably create another refugee crisis in Europe, as one headline in Forbes reminds us, the consequences of war, whether it's a Central American war or a war in Eastern Europe, or in the Middle East create huge refugee problems. This issue of violence and the wall and refugees is of course one that we continue to live with in the United States. Lots of headlines remain about Trump's involvement in the January 6th insurrection, a political headline about um, the backstory of Pence's January 6th argument and of course, all this touches on the imminence or perhaps even reality of an American civil war, of violence in America. We had uh, the American political scientist Barbara Walter on the show uh, in January last month talking about the likelihood of a second civil war in America. But the analyst who was, I think, most articulate and chilling about this war is the Canadian journalist uh, Stephen Marsh. He's been on the show a couple of times. He came on uh, a year ago, February 1, 2021, asking about whether Biden can save us from the Civil War. Uh, then he came out with a new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, in which he argues, as he suggested when he came on my show last month, uh, that America is indeed a fiercely divided country, which may not just be on the brink of civil war, but may be involved in a, a low-level civil war, perhaps like the one on the Ukrainian border. Uh, Marsh's observations and warning uh, really resonated when I read a new book called The Marauders, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands by my guest today, uh, the Dallas-based journalist, uh, Patrick Strickland, reading The Marauders reminded me that Marsh may indeed be right, that there already is a, a low-level civil war in the United States fought on its borders. Uh, Patrick um, Strickland, congratulations on this new book. It's out next week, The Marauders. It's a very impressive and chilling piece of reportage. You spent a lot of time on this border. Do you think Marsh is right, Patrick? 
is America already in a kind of civil war? Um, yeah, I mean, these these divisions, I think that I, I'm not familiar with the pieces that, that he wrote specifically, but um, with the notion more broadly, um, you, you have to assume that there's, if not a, you know, a low level civil war, it's certainly some type of uh, coming apart at the seams in some way. And I can just think of, you know, here in, in Texas, recent examples of, you know, new sort of militia groups going down to the border. And they're not only displeased with um, the, the federal government, but also with the, the state uh, uh, government in Texas, which is, of course, uh, overwhelmingly Republican. So um, there is a kind of discontent that's, that's certainly there, and there's always the capacity for violence uh, with these. Yeah, sort of and that's, of course, that's, of course, uh, the world that your new book, The Marauders, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands, is all about. Marsh reminds us, as, as a Canadian journalist, of how heavily armed Americans are. Again, that's not exactly news. Um, tell me the background of the marauders, Patrick. I know you spent a lot of time reporting on the refugee crisis in the Middle East, in Greece. You've done a lot of work for Al Jazeera. And then you came back to America and you found a refugee crisis here, if anything, is, is more heartbreaking more violent than the one you found in Greece. Is that fair? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I really do think that that global displacement is kind of one part of one big uh, uh, phenomenon. But, um, you know, in in Europe, I had started covering the, the refugee crisis uh, in 2015, when the numbers really, really skyrocketed. And that year alone, they say something like about a million people, you know, from all sorts of different countries had reached um, Europe, so it, it was um, it was an it was a, an interesting time to be reporting on that topic. And I was always interested in um, borders and and displacement, but also the way that interacts with um, the far right. You know, in Europe, it was really obvious when groups were trying to sort of capitalize on that. Um, that refugee crisis to build build up their bases or to use it as a launching pad for violence. So I wasn't so surprised to see that here. The history is is also long here. Um, yeah, you remind us uh, in the book of the Know Nothing Party of 19th century violent movements against refugees, whether they were Catholic or Irish or Italian. So this is certainly not new in American history. That's right. And even even the, the border vigilantism um, in the more contemporary sense is not, you know, strictly new. It really took off in the late 90s. But there are examples before that of, you know, uh, vigilante border patrols, um, including in the 1977 um, Klansmen led by David Duke and a guy called Louis Beam. And it was yeah. You have uh, a timepiece uh, on this. Here's a, for people watching. Here we have a picture of David Duke uh, on the 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 clan's leader uh, on the uh, California-Mexican border uh, with a gun. Uh, I guess trying to shoot down uh, migrants. Yeah, and that was largely looked at as a 
as a publicity stunt. But what's striking about that is the language they use. One of our, you know, our our collective culture being replaced by people coming from other countries is one that existed long before that and continues to persist now. The strange thing to me now is to think that that was sort of an offshoot of Klansmen in the late 70s and that this border vigilantism thing has become so so much more normalized over the last decades and even in recent months you know i mean i can think of one group from dallas that's that's been going down to the border and has built a lot of inroads with local pol republican political candidates here yeah i mean that's the chilling thing uh patrick about your book uh, the marauders is uh, according to your reportage from the borderlands it's a it's a lawless zone it's it's hobbesian in the sense that there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, federal control and so tell me the story of this town which you end up in arivaca i think that's the right pronunciation uh, on the border in arizona arivaca is just another town isn't it um in many ways and yet it became or it it, it is the the narrative in which you tell your story of this um, of this rebellion of the people against vigilantism. Yeah, it's a it's a small community um, population wise. It's about twelve miles from the border. Uh, that's as the crow flies, though, because um, there are there's some pretty rough uh, mountainous terrain in that area. Yeah, even the crow would probably the fly a little. Um, a little carefully here in Aravaca. Uh, here we have a map for people watching of um, Aravaca in Pima County in Arizona. The only people who would be familiar with it are locals or people who happen to be driving through. Um, is it a notorious place for uh, migrants, Patrick? <clears throat> migrants certainly cross in that area. Um, and that that's actually a sad fact because it's a very dangerous area to cross the, those mountains are very rugged and um it, it's a it's a it's a very interesting place in that regard because um <clears throat> there has been this flood of militias in recent years but of course you know this is a place that 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 wasn't new they did have militias back um in the past over a decade ago start showing up and in fact, that's when, um, in 2009, uh, a, a group of uh, rogue militiamen led by a woman named Shauna Ford um, raided uh, a house that they believed was some sort of big cartel stash house and killed a man, uh, Raul Flores, and his nine-year-old daughter, Brasenia. Um, so it, it's a place that has a long, you know, in a sense, they... They hadn't had an experience with these type of groups long before many other places have that are now just starting to grapple with these groups showing up in their communities. Yeah, I mean, looking at, I, I've never been there, but you can visit Aravaca on the internet and uh, for people watching, it's a beautiful sunset here um, of the mountains. It actually looks really nice. A historical perspective offered by a local resident and the website even talks about the Aravaca experience, rolling panoramic mountain views of 
the valley and some of Arizona's best birding and wildlife make Aravaca a unique destination. But of course, the uniqueness of the destination, uh, Patrick, for you was very different. It wasn't the local wildlife, it was the local militias. How extensive were they or are they uh, on, on the Arizona border? Um, well, uh, specifically in Arivaca, um, I, I almost kind of want to put a, an asterisk on the, the word local there because um, these militias, for the most part, have not come from that community. Um, and in right. fact, I really think there's only one group that's still there. The flood in 2018 of these groups, the sudden surge of them, um, you know, was uh, there were there was a group called the Utah Gun Exchange. There were uh, people from other groups in different different areas. Right. As, as your uh, as your time and a lovely time piece you wrote um, a couple of years ago, Arivaca has become uh, quote unquote a magnet for far right vigilantes. The, yeah, that timepiece is um, from from last week, and that one's uh, you know really about the border at large. But I think that um, I honestly don't don't think that people who showed up in Arivaca necessarily had um, a solid founding or um, a solid knowledge of what had happened there in two thousand nine and how that might affect their reception in the community. You know. That was something that left definitely left scars on 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 many people there. But as um, you write in the book, there's a history of unease between these vigilantes who often come from the outside, heavily armed, hardcore libertarians, um, and the locals, some of whom are not crazy about immigration. They're not all liberals, but they're all horrified by, or they were all horrified, or most of them are horrified by these vigilante groups. Is that fair, Patrick? I would say that there was a there was a large group within the community that was very vocally opposed to the uh, the vigilantes. And that's in part because when the vigilantes came and they didn't receive that warm reception, um, they some of them started immediately, you know, spreading conspiracy theories, kind of Pizzagate style uh, conspiracy theories about people in the community or businesses in the community accusing a community of being, you know, a haven for child sex trafficking. But um, not everyone there was opposed to the militia. There is, um, you know, there are a, a handful of, of, of people who are, are supportive, to my knowledge. Uh, one of them, um, a, a ranching family on the border that uh, also had ties to um you know, a lot of people in the sort of Trump camp of the political world. So there were some people who, you know, supported the militia and, and, and certainly received them openly and thought it was a good thing. Um, Do I you think that um, in terms of your reporting, do you think that the mainstream Trumpian part of the Republican Party implicitly or explicitly support these vigilante groups, these groups who come down heavily armed to, so to speak, or at least in their language, protect the border? Well, um... in other words, how mainstream 
is vigilantism now in American political culture? Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly a lot more mainstream than it was in the past. I mean, one example, just to think off the top of my head, is that these border vigilante groups uh, specifically, you know, most of them were very displeased during the George W. Bush years. Um, they were obviously uh, peaking again during the Obama years. And um, I th to my knowledge, you know, Trump was the first time that there was a person in office whom they supported uh, openly. And that's, of course, not everyone. But uh, I can think of uh, uh, one, one person there in the militia movement, uh, the border militia movement, named Tim Foley, who's uh, still in Arivaca, as far as I know, and heads the Arizona Border Recon Group. And, you know, he shared a stage at, at various points with former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who had been uh, pardoned by, by President Trump when he or then President Trump, uh, Kellyanne Conway, who was, of course, in the White House with Trump, uh, Steve King, the former congressman and uh, who left amid some scandal. Uh, he also had been at gatherings with Roger Stone, uh, whom I, I suppose everybody knows. So in a sense, there are pockets of this group, of this you know movement uh, or uh, this uh, subculture of border vigilantes who have made very... Um, very... Right. So, as you're suggesting, it's not just David Duke anymore. Here we have the, the image of David Duke from 1977. Obviously, he's a distasteful character, but somewhat absurd, I think. Uh, now, the Dukes of the world have become much more mainstream. Let's go back to your book, uh, Patrick. Um, the subtitle, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands. Do you see your book as a warning? Is it an inspirational tale for other small communities who are being bullied by vigilantes? Might it be a warning about the fact that the border is indeed lawless or both? I mean, the border, I, I think the way I, you know, conceived it as I wrote it was that, um, you know, it was a moment in history where, uh, in a micro history where people, and not just in Arivaca, but a few other parts of southern Arizona had, you know, just found a way to stand up and, and, and say that they were, they were against this. And I thought that was uh, a moment uh, worth capturing in the historical record. It's, it's inspirational, but what about, uh, and these pop up in the narrative from time to time, what about the local police? They're the ones who should be maintaining order. Do they have a degree of responsibility for allowing these vigilantes to throw their weight around, to intimidate, to bully, to spread rumors? Well, um, the, there is no local police department in the se same sense as in Dallas or New York or somewhere else. Um, Arivaca is so far out and it's an unincorporated community. Um, mostly it's spread out. It's, you know, obviously very desert rural um, that the, the law enforcement, for the most part, falls under the, the county sheriff, Pima County, and Pima County is massive. Um, so, you know, you, you hear stories that are sometimes, you know, unrelated stuff uh, about how long it takes even, you know, um, 
emergency services, if they have to come from another city, there is a, a, a local fire department. But if they have to come from another uh, area, Green Valley or Tucson or whatever, you know, that could take up to an hour. Uh, it's, it's a very big and spread out area. So but didn't, uh, didn't the local residents, when these vigilantes are throwing their weight around, bullying, spreading rumor, didn't they complain to the local law authorities? Is that the only way that they could respond bar actually resisting themselves and, and, and then sort of falling into a, a kind of a, a low level state of, of war? Yeah, I mean, they, they did appeal to uh, county officials and county law enforcement. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, some of the groups uh, have been able to continue sort of operating. Um, a, a different group, Veterans on Patrol, uh, their leader, uh, the guy who, you know, runs that group has been in and out of trouble with county law enforcement and city law enforcement in Tucson, you know, for years. Um and uh, he still, you know, every time he gets out, he just goes back to it, going after humanitarians or, um, you know, gallivanting around the, the border. Um, border Patrol says that they don't um, have any cooperation with these groups. They don't approve of it. They say that um, it makes it more difficult for them. Um, and I think that that's true. The part about making it more difficult, I'm sure. But... Uh, at the same time, um, you know, federal authorities really are probably the ones who would need to step in to do something about it if there was going to be an official response. And sometimes that does happen. I mean, sometimes people do get, you know, in legal trouble, but, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't. And I guess it's a perennial feature of America at the margins. This general lawlessness is certainly a historical feature. Patrick, uh, Biden's been in power a year. Most of your reporting was done, or I think all your reporting was done in the Trump period, obviously very different kind of America. A couple of thoughts on Biden. Um, has he changed in any way the problem of the refugees? I use that word carefully, the problem, the issue of refugees at the border. And secondly... Has the atmosphere in a place like Arivaca changed in the last year since Biden came to power? Is there more uh, confidence that you can that the local community can actually stand up to these vigilante groups? I so I have not been back to Arivaca since uh, Biden became president. Um, and you're right; the book does pretty much end right around the time of the the Capitol riot. But I assume you talk to people on the phone and yeah. uh, on, on the web. What's your sense of whether people feel a little bit safer now? Well, I think that with the issue of the border, generally speaking, um, you know, the numbers of people arriving have have gone up. Uh, um, that that rise actually started when Trump was still president. Um, and just to like zoom out a little bit and look at the political climate and the way it sort of interacts with um, with the more worrisome fringes is, I mean, you know, it was the case that in 2018, ahead of the primary or the uh, midterm elections, when Trump started using the word invasion, you know, very regularly, it was the case that people were, in, uh, you know, very disturbed by that. Now it's 
later, of course, that that's the same word that say the mash, the white nationalist who shot and killed 23 people in El Paso um, used. You know, he talked about a Mexican invasion of the country. Um, and so that language, you know, was condemned after that, uh, that that mass killing in 2019. But now I hear it almost every day from uh, the Republican politicians in Texas, including the governor. You, he's used that language, Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, you've reported on Alex um I know you've done a lot of work for the Dallas Observer. You've, you've reported on Alex Jones, um, on Abbott's building uh, the wall. Um, uh, and about Abbott really being an incompetent governor. So in what you're really saying, things are no better under the Biden regime. If anything, they're worse on the border. <laughs> I, I think that there's always, a, I mean, we use these words, refugee crisis, migration crisis, all of that, and people sometimes object to that. Um, as a sort of knee-jerk reaction. I think it's always a crisis for the migrants and the refugees, right? And people are fleeing um, many different things. It's one of the, the worst parts of these discussions, and especially in the U.S., is that we, we hardly describe what it is that people are leaving, you know, why somebody might flee uh, violence in Central America, or uh, in the case of, you know, when I was reporting on migration and in Europe, why people were leaving, say, Syria, where it really was a life or death um, decision for many people. And I think when the rhetoric becomes and the discussion becomes solely about the border, uh, border security, uh, and all of this uh, sort of stuff, you lose that. You lose that. And that's that's integral. That context is integral for having some sort of empathy for people who, you know, may not have any choice but to try to seek seek out a safe place, a shelter somewhere else in another country like the United States. Uh, ironically, though, isn't that one of the aspects of your book, The Marauders, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands? It's a book about this low-level civil war in America on the border. But the migrants themselves don't really show up in the book, do they? Not much, you're right, and that's because They're the kind of ghosts of this book, the tragic ghosts, um, who, as you say, are crossing the border, are being shot, are being intimidated by everyone on every side. Yeah, uh, you know that that wasn't how I originally conceived the book. I did, I did want to spend considerably more time. Yeah, I, I don't mean it, Patrick, as a criticism. You can't do it in a book, and I think it's an interesting book mm -hmm. about how the local community rebelled against vigilantism and in that sense it's an inspiring sure. book um but yeah you you the, the, they are the ghosts the migrants the central american migrants are the ghosts of your narrative of course and you know it was my hope early on and the way i had it planned sort of uh to spend a lot of time in in northern mexico um but of course by the time that i came back to work on that part of the book it was very early on in the pandemic. Um, I had to leave Greece because the where I was living because the immigration office shut down and I couldn't renew my own residency. So really those last nine or 10 months um, was the period of the pandemic before a vaccine, you know, and I never felt quite uh, comfortable uh, going into places, you know, say migrant camps, 
or whatever and on the southern side of the border because not only did it not want to take certain risks myself but of course didn't want to put anyone else at risk yeah absolutely so patrick finally on the book do you see it as an inspirational tale as a as in a, in, in a peculiar way a piece of good news that finally american citizens are standing up against vigilantes should it be read in that way i mean I've always, as a journalist, been attracted to those stories, not just to the bad thing that's happening, but the people who are pushing back against it in one way or another, um, no matter where it is, right? And the really interesting thing about these people who, you know, uh, stood up to sort of make their voices heard and, and let militia and other far-right vigilantes and anti-migrant uh, vigilantes know that they didn't support their message is that none of them you know, as far as I know, were had a long pedigree in activism or organizing or anything like that. They were, you know, everyday folks who banded together. And I think that no matter where you are, that is a really interesting, that is a really interesting lesson, you know. It certainly is an interesting lesson. And <laughs> anyone who wants to read about it needs to get Patrick's new book, The Marauders, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American borderlands um very original piece of first-hand reporting from a world that most of us have no real first-hand familiarity with congratulations patrick on the book um in late february 2022 what else should people be reading um i really if you want to know more about the history of Arivaka, there's a great book called in hell traveled with her by david newert um he's a, a journalist who um, wrote about the 2009 murders and, and all of the context leaving, leading up to that. It was very good. Um, there's a historian named Kathleen Bellew who has a wonderful book on, on the, the sort of very far right and the militia movements uh, or, uh, called Bring the War Home. Uh, that's a, that's a, ver a very good one. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, Sh Shane Burley has a good book called Why We Fight. It's a collection of essays about the radical right in the United States. And I think all of those books are, you know, wonderful resources for learning more about these sort of hardcore fringes and how they have over the years become less fringe. Uh, certainly chilling books and your book, The Marauder, <laughs> Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands is Partly chimic, partly chilling, partly inspirational. Again, congratulations on the book, Patrick. Finally, I'm asking all my guests this all-important question in early 2022. Uh, Patrick Strickland, the author of The Marauders. Uh, Patrick, who runs the world? I suppose uh, <laughs> the people with the most uh, wealth and, uh, and political power um are the ones who make all the decisions for us i guess to an extent um i'm not you know i don't have a wonderful answer for that question so 